This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bioproven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Our guest this week didn't grow up on a farm, yet he's one of the most sought-after researchers identifying the farmer and consumer of the future. Learn what a group of Army intelligence officers is telling agriculture about what to expect and how to adapt. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, and it's brought to you by Pivot Bioproven. We're in the middle of our corn harvest, and I recently picked the corn in our Pivot Bioproven field trial. You may remember that Pivot Bioproven adheres to the root of the corn plant creating a mutually beneficial nitrogen-generating partnership that stays strong all the way through harvest. It's a weather-resistant and sustainable way to achieve more predictable and productive yields than ever before. So, what were the results? Well, our corn using Pivot Bioproven out-yielded the non-treated corn by 7 bushels per acre. That's the second year in a row we saw a yield boost. But even more exciting is the opportunity to replace some of our synthetic nitrogen since Pivot Bioproven can be a proven source of nitrogen throughout the growing season. That's a big factor, especially in a time of higher input prices. I'll be sharing more results and thoughts throughout harvest, and you can learn more about Pivot Bio and those field trials throughout the nation by going to pivotbio.com. Brett Scotto is CEO and founder of Aimpoint Research. As he'll explain, his background as an Army intelligence officer provided him a unique perspective on understanding change and how to adapt, first on the battlefield, but now in business and specifically in agriculture. In fact, he conducts something called a war game for agriculture that brings together farmers and leaders in the industry to navigate through a series of real-world challenges that may arise in the future. Suffice it to say, I think you'll be intrigued by Aimpoint's research and what they are telling us about farmers and consumers of the future. Well, Andrew, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm Brett Scotto. I'm the CEO and founder of Aimpoint Research, and we are a strategic intelligence firm that works across agri-food to help leaders uh, more comprehensively understand the dynamics that are impacting their business and our industry, and also think a little more clearly about what's coming over the horizon next that they have to be ready for. Tell folks your background, because it certainly wasn't an agriculture. It went through West Point. It did. I, I'm a West Point graduate, uh, as are most of my leadership team. Uh, we, uh, most of us were Army intelligence officers. That's where I got my start. Served in a number of unique capacities. Was the fusion chief for the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, and that taught me a lot about intelligence integration. When I came out of the Army, I wanted to continue to do that. I saw the power of good intelligence to really be a competitive advantage and wanted to help leaders in the civilian sector continue to do that. I fell in love with agriculture, saw the important national security implications of a strong agricultural industry, and so we went to work helping uh, ag and food leaders uh, using that same integrated intelligence that, that we learned as a, as a baseline in the Army. And so we've applied that now uh, in, in the civilian business. We're going to talk about the farmer of the future and the consumer of the future, but before we do that, you mentioned the intelligence side. You have something called a war games. We normally think of that going on at the Pentagon, but you conduct that for agriculture. Yes, it's a powerful tool, and so it's something that we did at both the strategic and tactical level in the Army. It's a way of 
testing our plans, looking for blind spots. It's a way of solving complex problem sets. It's a very effective way to bring the smartest people together to uh, to deal with a future dynamic and to test different ways of, of reacting to it. And so, if nothing else, although predicting the future is uh, is an art and a science, uh, wargaming gives uh, leaders an, an opportunity to exercise uh, their plans in a way that makes them more confident when they are confronting a, a crisis or a scenario in the future. So it's all intelligence-based. It's based on determining uh, likely future states. And then we, we exercise organizations and ecosystems and, and sometimes across the industry uh, through these war games, uh, different ways that they might approach being impactful and relevant and ready for what's coming. And you would have everybody from farmers to agribusiness people to people outside of agriculture that can pay to attend the war games, right? They can. We try to make sure we have a good uh, cross-representation from across agri-food value chain. They're typically big thinkers, strategic thinkers. And we're there to challenge conventional wisdom, to challenge status quo, and to really find ways that we can make the industry stronger for all the reasons I said before, because of the, the national security implications of a strong agriculture. So it's important for us uh, to exercise those muscles and to think deeply about how we can be better, not only because it's so critical to our own stability here as a nation, but we think it's important to be able to project American food power around the world. It's one of the most stabilizing forces on the planet. So one of the things you do through your company, and perhaps a bit of an outgrowth of that, is looking at the farmer of the future and the consumer of the future. Let's begin with the farmer. And I know one question on this is going to be hard to sum up, but begin by telling me who is the farmer of the future that is successful uh, coming up in the, the coming decade or so. So a couple of years ago, Andrew, we decided to kind of set out and answer this big but complex question, who are the farmers of the future and what will they require of all of us in the industry? It was a a reaction to our observation that so many in agriculture were only planning two to three years, maybe five if they were a really progressive organization into the future. In the military, we had this notion of the close battle and the deep battle. Close battles where you're engaged right now, you have to win that to get to the next. But you didn't have the luxury of taking your eye off the horizon. You had to also simultaneously be thinking about what's in the long-term future that could come and challenge us even more. So in 2018, we brought a collaborative group of clients together to answer this, that big question. And we did a number of things. We went across the, the nation and we sat across the table from farmers and ranchers. And we talked about their journey, talked about their challenges and the, the ways in which they made decisions and approached the business. We did a psychographic segmentation, which is a really fancy word for a quantitative exercise where we dug into personalities and how they view the world, farmers and ranchers, how they make decisions in tough times and who they rely on and how they ultimately go to business and what that mindset is. And that quantitative exercise let math tell us how farmers and ranchers were different from each other. And what we learned through that uh, was that it really is a mindset and an approach to the business that team seems to indicate success more than any demographics or even behavioral uh, in that we, we like in America to stereotype. Big farmers act this way, small farmers act that way, old farmers, young farmers. That's really mis- misleading. So we found that there are five segments. 
And two of those segments are really entrepreneurial, the independent elites and enterprising business builders. These are farmers that are very secure. They're focused in, uh, on the business. They're growing. Uh, they're financially in a good position. They are innovators, earlier adopters, and they really approach the business differently than the other three groups. Collectively, the independent elites and the enterprising business builders are about 41% of the farmer rancher universe today. The other three groups, classic practitioners, self-reliant traditionals, and leveraged lifestylers, all have a different uh, set of challenges, each group uh, different from the other, but in general tend to be slower adopters of new technology, uh, more challenging for them to adapt and change, tend to be under a higher level of financial duress, which makes them more risk adverse. And so what you see is the farmer-rancher universe kind of spreading out, where you have these trailblazers that are highly entrepreneurial, that are creating closer relationships with supply chains and with agri-food companies. Uh, they are innovating faster. They're leaning forward on technologies to make them more efficient and better at what they do. They're leaning forward on sustainable practices. And all of that is making them more competitive in the marketplace from their other three groups. After we figured out that psychographic segmentation, we went out and did a series of wargaming exercises and to try to articulate what are the key variables and dynamics that will challenge farmers over the next 20 years and how will these groups have to react in order to make it through. And what we found was that over the next 20 years to 2040, that 41% of the farmers that I just talked about, the independent elites and enterprising business builders, actually will grow to be 71% by 2040. And so that future state farmer is very innovative, very adaptable, and very entrepreneurial. The other groups will change in terms of their percentage and proportions uh, over time at different rates, but it's important to know that that entrepreneurial class really have the attributes necessary to, to navigate through what I just called today, you know, the fourth agricultural revolution. This is a dynamic time for ag. So you mentioned that this, that group is going to grow and they have to be innovative and entrepreneurial in spirit. Is that just other groups then? Can they transform? Can they cross a barrier? Or is it attrition? The others drop off. And so by virtue, the others grow. Yeah, I get that question a lot. So first, it's important to note that farmers have psychographics, not farms, right? And so as uh, the younger generation comes in, as the entrepreneurial farmer becomes more successful, others do fall off. They exit the business uh, or they sell their land or rent their land. In a number of ways, these entrepreneurial farmers become uh, largely more and more a proportionate controller of the ag land across America. And so it's a combination of, of folks exiting, of folks kind of uh, leaving the industry, and uh, a disproportionate growth and success from these entrepreneurial farmers. What then sets those folks apart besides these labels, and we're calling them innovative entrepreneurs, but what types of things are they doing? And you mentioned it's not tied to a farm, so are they managing operations of all different sizes? They are, and that's one of the findings of the study is that demographics is really a misleading thing, is that some of these farms uh, that are not going to be these farmers that are running very large farms are not going to succeed, and there are some mid-tier and small uh, farm uh, farms that will succeed, and they're growing like rockets really because of the mindset of the leader uh, that is, is ultimately uh, farming them. And so the demographics can be extremely misleading. Now, don't get me wrong, there's advantages to scale. 
but there are a lot of small farmers out there that we see growing very successfully, direct-to-consumer niche-type operations. And so this entrepreneurial spirit is a key component of those that will make it. You also talk about the consumer of the future. So I'm interested, is the successful farmer of the future ones that are in touch with the future consumer? Uh, is that a vital link in helping them succeed? Andrew, there's no question that the consumer is having a disproportionate uh, influence across agri-food today. The, the consumers are changing. They're changing very rapidly in what they expect from agri-food. The food companies and retailers that provide products to them are adapting to connect with those consumers on shared values, not just the attributes of the, the food and the products, but also the value system by which they were brought to the market. And what we find is that these supply chains that ultimately serve these retailers and food companies are having to have a certain level of discipline and consistency in those value systems, meaning they're bringing organic or they're bringing uh, locally sourced or whatever their claim is that that end user wants to, to give to the consumer. They have to make sure their supply chain is actually providing what they say they're providing. What we find is that the farmers of the future, uh, the two groups I mentioned, really are leaning forward. They have a longer term view of where the industry is headed. They are more in tune with these consumer demands, largely because they are associating more closely with the supply chains that are serving those consumers. And so rather than uh, the fierce independence that some farmers like to maintain, uh, these other farmers are far more adaptable and willing to surrender some independence. And I'll give you an example. You know, we have uh, a lot of farmers that come to these war games. In one war game in particular, there was a farmer there that says, I understand that consumers are asking for this, and I understand that food companies and retailers want to connect with them and deliver, but this is my farm, and I have farmed this way for generations, and there's no way I'm going to let some food company tell me how to do what I do best. In fact, I'm going to go down with this ship before anyone's going to tell me how to farm. And we find that they're absolutely right. They're going to go down with the ship right to the bottom of the ocean because that is not how this will work in the future. Agriculture and food are really becoming much closer and integrated. They're not two separate industries anymore. The agri-food value chain is becoming tighter knit. In agriculture, including farmers, we all have to be part of the innovation cycle that food companies and retailers need us to be to help deliver these unique products with unique value systems back to the consumer. At the end, we're all serving the consumer, and not only the consumer of the future, but the consumer of now. And what they're asking for is different than what most of the institutions of agriculture are prepared to deliver. So it's a time that we need to transform faster. You have lots of data on the consumer of the future, so you're always out there researching. So what can you tell us about that consumer that perhaps we don't know? I think a lot of us figure, okay, they're going to be wanting more organic, more fresh, more local, and that's maybe younger consumers. Where am I right and where am I wrong? What we're finding is that a lot of the trends that we see manifested in the marketplace are not being driven just by the young, but that really it's cross-generational, that all consumers are starting uh, to grow in their food consciousness, that they're starting to understand more uh, about how food affects their health and their energy and their ability to achieve their goals in life. That connection to health, that connection to our food having an impact on our communities and our, uh, and our planet, that awareness of uh, the fact that I might need more personalized type nutrition, these trends are growing in their intensity. They're cross-generational, and they're going to continue to impact agriculture in lots of, lots of ways. The consumer of the future wants to build trust with the food that they're eating and wants to make sure that it's best for them and their family. 
And while for a long time we didn't fully understand the, the impact that food had on our health, we're starting to learn that. And in, in America, six out of 10 of us have some kind of a chronic disease that creates trillions of dollars in healthcare costs for our nation. And what we're starting to figure out is that a more personalized, a more surgical approach to nutrition that is based on DNA, that is based on our individual needs, could alleviate a lot of those chronic conditions if we just eat better and more healthy. So while in America, you know, there are always pockets of food insecurity, but in general, we're pretty food secure. The question now is, are we nutritionally secure? And do we have the right food system to uh, ultimately make for a healthier population? The consumer of the future is starting to figure out that that's what they want. Now they're looking for companies and food companies and products that can actually deliver on that, which is spurring a ton of innovation. That innovation, obviously, large companies are interested. They're doing the research. Do those large companies then dominate, or is it new and upcoming startups that you think dominate? I definitely think it's a combination of both. So the large food companies are innovating. They're investing in uh, new models. They're using venture funds to try to acquire uh, companies that are disruptive. But equally, we see their market share slowly eroding to midsize and small, smaller companies. Part of that is the advanced logistics and the capabilities that we have to move products around the world now. We don't have to have the infrastructure we used to have when we have a population that's connected and able to order online. You know, I can create a unique product in a, in a small building outside of Columbus, Ohio, and I can ship that product around the world. And so that is putting pressure on the large companies to, to continue to innovate and innovate faster. We were most certainly in an era of disruption. And what consumers are asking for is and not or. They don't want to have to compromise. They want food that tastes good and is at a good price and is nutritious and healthy for them. Uh, and, you know, I often joke about when I was growing up, when my mom said we were going to eat healthy tonight, that was code for it wasn't going to taste very good. And I think we're coming into an era where the expectation is, is I can eat really healthy and it can taste really good and it doesn't have to cost me a fortune to do it. We are in an era where entrepreneurs and businesses are trying to solve for those consumer tensions more than ever. And there is so much money and innovation out there, venture money flowing into agriculture that we have at levels we've never seen before. For farmers, are they, in a sense, just along for the ride that companies are going to begin to tell them, well, we need you to grow this, and if you don't grow this, then we're not going to have a market? Or how do farmers survive this? Because I think the frustration that one farmer had was, I don't want to be told what to do. That's not a fun way to go through life. So how does a farmer innovate but yet feel like they have some control over their future? Yeah, I really think it's a partnership. And farmers, you know, there are uh, farmers out there with the mindset that they have to be defensive, that these consumers don't understand why I do what I do. And I've, I've done it this way for generations. I'm going to keep, we, we have to open our minds to the fact that we're part of that innovation cycle. There's not a food company out there that wouldn't embrace a farmer bringing to them some unique trait, some unique capability, some niche product, or some twist on, a, on an existing product that makes the end delivery to the consumer better. What we have to uh, engage in is that innovation and understand rather than being defensive about these consumer trends, find a way to embrace them. Uh, We did a war game back in 2019 in Nashville, and one of the conclusions was that while consumers trust farmers, we have this altruistic Norman Rockwell view of farming, uh, they don't trust farming. They're very concerned about how we farm. And I think what we learned through that war game exercise was that farming and agriculture in general had really lost a connection to the consumer. 
that relationship isn't really there. And that relationship now is with the food companies and the retailers. And you can see how influential a Costco can be. How when you walk into a Costco store, you quickly get the sense that they're non-GMO, they're organic, they're cage-free. They want to make those claims. And whether it's the consumer seeking it out or Costco only providing those options to a consumer at the end of the day, uh, they're, they're connecting with those consumers on shared values. We have an option. We can be part of that collaboration and embrace that change and find new ways to bring innovation to those supply chains, or we can defend and fight it. Uh, and at the end, I don't think that works out very well for us. I'd like to look at both corn and beans and then animal proteins, because that's something you talked about. So give me the future of, of corn and soybeans, which dominate today. Do they dominate 10 and 20 and 30 years down the road? Yeah, I'd have to answer that separately because we think soybeans uh, and the need for protein in the world for renewable diesel and renewable fuels, we think soybeans uh, will continue to be a dominant commodity uh, for the, the mid and long term. Corn we see more struggle with over time, mostly uh, on, on two fronts. One is the, uh, the erosion of the ethanol market that will inevitably come from electric vehicle adoption. 40% of corn goes to, to ethanol. There will be a shift in feed stocks, and that obviously hits corn and soybeans at varying proportions. The simple fact is alternative proteins, plant-based and eventually cell-cultured meats, will take up a percentage of uh, the protein market around the world. By 2035, we're expecting that to be around a 20 to 22% market share. So dominant as, as of course, animal protein, that's not going to change. But even at 10 or 20 percent, it can have huge implications for the feedstock and therefore the row crop industry. For example, at 20 percent market share by alternative plant-based proteins rather than animal protein, you lose demand for about 800 million bushels of corn just in that small change. And so we have to get out of the mindset that it's either or. What we see in the marketplace is consumers bringing in alternative proteins onto the plate as a replacement maybe for one meal a week or one meal a month even. It's not all or nothing. They're still going to eat that steak and that hamburger and they're going to go to the ballpark and have a hot dog. It's not all or nothing. It's just the incremental move towards alternative proteins that they believe are healthier for them uh, will begin to erode some of the opportunities for animal agriculture and therefore the row crops that, that feed them. Lots of international markets. It will continue to be growth there, but we're going to have to embrace a world where alternative proteins is a normal part of the American diet and the global diet. We still have to feed folks. So what happens then if we have more plant-based proteins? Is there another crop that comes along or other crops that you think farmers will be growing more of in the future to meet that demand? I do. I think on a number of fronts, we see evidence that the food system has to become more diverse. And there are other plant-based proteins like pea, pea protein and lentils and other crops that maybe not as widely grown here in the United States that will begin to uh, be looked at a little more closely. I think all indicators are we need more diversity in our in our system. And I think as farmers start to see that and hear from their supply chains uh, that they serve, you're going to see some farmers start to begin to pivot to these alternative commodities and crops that allow them to, to meet a unique need in the market that's growing. Change can always be difficult for us. So give me the, the optimistic message for farmers. 
certainly there has to be opportunity out there. So how do you see them succeeding and what are the opportunities for the future? Well, as an Army guy, one of my favorite quotes is from Sun Tzu where he says, in chaos, there is great opportunity. And I think there is a, I won't call it chaos, but there's certainly a dynamic time ahead. And that does provide tremendous opportunity for farmers and ranchers and for our industry and the organizations that serve our industry if they're willing to transform and adapt and be proactive instead of defensive. Uh, I mean, the world needs to eat. And at the end of that chain are the, is the, the great farmers and ranchers that make our nation and our agri-food value chain strong that allow us to project that American food power around the world. But we have to be open-minded to that change. We have to embrace it, almost even lead it in some cases. And that's where agriculture's sometimes been slower to, to transform and pivot than others in the chain. And I think it's our time where we have to embrace that, that agri-food, we're really one industry. And those food companies and retailers aren't, they don't want to have to dictate to us. They want us to be part of that. Consumers are demanding a lot of them. And uh, whether we know it or not, when we wake up in the morning on our farms, the end user of our product is a consumer out there that wants to be connected with on these shared values, which we know are three and a half times more powerful at building trust than the facts. We can't educate these consumers on the science we have to embrace the fact that they have emotional uh, and shared value kind of aspects to how they're making decisions. And quite frankly, we have a great story to tell. We just got to get out of the defensive posture. Very good conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. It's been great to be with you. I found Brett's information very interesting. If you have a chance to hear him speak or perhaps even attend one of his company's war games for agriculture, it will provide you with an understanding of where things may be headed in the industry. I appreciate you joining us, and remember, you can catch past shows and connect with us at farmingthecountryside.com, and you can follow on Facebook as well. And catch our daily show, American Countryside, on the radio, americancountryside.com, and Facebook too. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot BioProven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com.